but if you'll turn with me now to your copy of God's Word, to Romans 5. Romans 5. It's page 942 in the Bibles in the Rows. If you need a Bible to use today, uh, please feel free to use those or take it home if you need one. Uh, but 5, 1 through 11, this is our text for Advent. Therefore, since we have been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Through him we have also obtained access by faith into this grace in which we stand and we rejoice in hope of the glory of God. Not only that, but we rejoice in our sufferings, knowing that suffering produces endurance, and endurance produces character, and character produces hope. And hope does not put us to shame, because God's love has been poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who has been given to us. For while we were still weak at the right time, Christ died for the ungodly. For one will scarcely die for a righteous person, though perhaps for a good person one would dare even to die. But God shows his love for us, and that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Since therefore we have now been justified by his blood, much more shall we be saved by him from the wrath of God. For if while we were enemies we were reconciled to God by the death of his Son, much more now that we are reconciled shall we be saved by his life. More than that, we also rejoice in God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have now received reconciliation. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray. Father, we do come before you this morning and we ask that you would fill us with your spirit today. Lord, it is only by the work of your spirit that we can understand and take to heart your word. And so work that in us today. Work in us by faith your love and your grace and your mercy and your kindness. Fill me that I would speak clearly this morning. And Lord, soften our hearts and open our ears to hear your truth and your comfort and grace in Christ Jesus. We pray for your glory and for our good and joy in Christ's name. Amen. Do you ever think about the importance of love? Why does love matter in our lives? And and really even, how does being loved and and knowing we are loved affect someone? I wondered about it, so I did what everyone who has a question these days does, and I searched the internet. You can come up with a number of interesting answers, but I did find one article that had some... um, some interesting things. It was on the positive and perhaps surprising health benefits of love. And these are mainly in regard to married couples in a, in a fairly healthy relationship. And the article listed these um, benefits. One was increased life expectancy. Also, that healthy and happy marriages reduce, the, the, those in them, reduce the risk of developing cardiovascular disease over those who tend to feel more lonely or stress in relationships. It reduces depression supports the immune system. There's often decreased anxiety and reduction of stress levels, mainly due to the security and support offered in a healthy relationship. Surprisingly, it could also ease acute or chronic pain. Apparently, those who are happily married have fewer reported complaints of back pain and headaches. Love also helps nurture and support life-enhancing gut microbiome. And finally, it can improve your sleep. 
Now, there are some real benefits to being in loving relationships, and, and in particular, in knowing you are loved. Not just in a married relationship, there are benefits across the board to knowing that you are loved. The love of a good friend, the love in community of, of parents with children. So how much more do you think that would be the benefits to being in a relationship of love with the God of the universe? Elise Fitzpatrick wrote in her book, Because He Loves Me, these words, It is essential for us to think about God's love today because it is only his love that can grant us the joy that will strengthen our hearts, the courage that will embolden us in our fight against sin, and the assurance that will enable us to open up our lives to him so that he might deal powerfully with our unbelief and idolatry. If we're not completely convinced that his love is ours right now, fully and unalterably ours, we'll always hide in the shadows, focusing on our performance, fearing his wrath. If we don't consciously live in light of his love, the gospel will be secondary, virtually meaningless, and Jesus Christ will fade into insignificance. Our faith will become all about us, our performance, and how we think we're doing, and our transformation will be hindered. Now this begs the question, how can we actually be sure of God's love? And she says, we need to focus on it, and I think rightly so, but how can we be sure of his love? Because it's profoundly important. We just saw how love benefits a married relationship, and being assured of that love is the cornerstone of safety and fulfillment, and further assurance of love is indispensable in the healthy development of a child. And then to be assured of God's love, how much more of a blessing can that bring in our lives? John Stott wrote, it is a major, the major secret of joy, peace, freedom, and confidence, and self-respect. Now, all of this I hope to show this morning from our text as we wrap up this Advent series. Through the traditional themes of the season, we've looked at hope and peace and joy, and now obviously we turn to love. We're going to look at two ideas, subjective and objective. So the subjective nature of, of God's love and the objective. And now just as a side note, even the subjective is grounded in objective truth. So even the subjective that we feel that we experience is grounded in objective truth. The, the question though is whether we, we, we know it experientially in our lives. So my prayer is this, that we would not only understand God's love as it is laid out in this text, but that we would experience it, that we would long for it, and rest confident in His love, in the love He has for His children, and see that change our lives in the day-to-day. So let's look at the first four verses again. Therefore, since we have been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Through him we have also obtained access by faith into this grace in which we stand and we rejoice in hope of the glory of God. Not only that, but we rejoice in our sufferings, knowing that our suffering produces endurance and endurance produces character and character produces hope. So just to recap some of what we've gone through is Paul's laid out the wonderful truth of our justification, of of a believer being declared righteous in the sight of God only because of the work of Christ that's received and rested on in the person by faith alone. And from that justification, a believer has peace and access to God the Father, which is astonishing in and of itself when you consider our natural status as children of wrath. Further, we can rejoice 
in our sure and confident hope of the glory of God. And even in the trials of life, we can rejoice because we trust that the Lord will use them to build us up in Christ, to build our endurance and our character and our hope. And then we come to verse 5. And hope does not disappoint us, does not put us to shame, because God's love has been poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who has been given to us. The hope we have does not bring shame in any way. It doesn't disappoint us. It is a sure and infallible hope. And why can we have this hope? And how can we have this hope? How do we know that we have this hope? Because God's love has been poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who has been given to us. Now, I don't want us to run past the language that Paul uses here. God's love has been poured into our hearts. Now, that that should conjure up some type of visual in our minds. God's love is is not dripped like a a slow IV in the hospital. It's just one drip. You know, it's so many cc's per hour or something, really tiny. God's love is more like a firefighting plane dropping water on a blaze or of Niagara Falls pouring over 3,160 tons of water every second. That's 75,750 gallons of water per second over the American and Bridal Veil Falls and 681,750 gallons per second over the Horseshoe Falls. There is not a lack to God's love. It is poured out upon believers through the Holy Spirit who has been given to us. Now, objectively, the Spirit has been given to all believers. Ephesians 1.13, in him, you, a believer, you also, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, and believed in him, were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit. So part of the Spirit's work, though, is, is not to, to pour himself out, but to pour God's love into our hearts, into the very fiber of our beings, so that we know it deeply. His work is to make God's love unmistakable and unforgettable. What a job, right? To make God's love unmistakable and unforgettable in the life of a believer. John Stott put this beautifully. Under the vivid metaphor of a cloudburst on a parched countryside. So picture that. A vivid metaphor of a cloudburst on a parched countryside. What the Holy Spirit does is to make us deeply and refreshingly aware that God loves us. It is very similar to Paul's latter statement that the Spirit himself testifies with our spirit that we are God's children, Romans 8, 16. There is little, if any, appreciable difference between being assured of God's fatherhood and of his love. That's who he is. So you can, you, you can see in this, this first part that, that this is both objectively true, but also something that we subjectively experience. We can call God our Father. We can be assured of his love. But subjectively, our awareness of his love can fluctuate. Our awareness can fluctuate. We can certainly be struggling in certain areas of life. The darkness may be very thick. Things can cloud over the mercy and love of God in our lives. We may be struggling very much so to know the love of God in our own lives. And that's when we have to turn to the objective truth. 
the truth of God's love, and we need to let His truth speak clearly and deeply and refreshingly to our hearts. So let's read the rest of our text. Verse 6, For while we were still weak, at the right time Christ died for the ungodly. For one will scarcely die for a righteous person, though perhaps for a good person one would dare even to die. But God shows his love for us, and that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Since therefore we have now been justified by his blood, much more shall we be saved by him from the wrath of God. For if while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God by the death of his son, much more now that we are reconciled, shall we be saved by his life. More than that, we also rejoice in God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have now received reconciliation. So when we doubt, when when we aren't sure of God's love, this is what we need to hear. This is where we ought to turn to rock-solid truth. For while we were still weak, at the right time, Christ died for the ungodly. Christ died. He gave himself for those who were weak. There there is a sense, I think, in, in which you could actually argue that the very essence of love is to give. It's to give of yourself. John 3.16, this is from the the, the Christian Standard Bible because I like the way this translation puts this. For God loved the world in this way. He gave his one and only son so that everyone who believes in him will not perish but have eternal life. It emphasizes the the nature of the gift. God loved in this way, in, in this manner, in the way of giving his son. It was in this way that he demonstrated the extent and the nature of his love. There's there, folks, there is no hint of miserliness in God. God is not a Scrooge. He's so loved in this way. He's loved. He gave himself by the Son. And that that was a a rock and an anchor for Paul. Galatians 2.20, I've been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. And the life I now live, I live by faith in the Son of God. What? Who loved me and gave himself for me. That was a solid place for Paul to hold on to. It was overwhelming and an anchor. Now, in our text, Paul wrote that it was at the right time that God did this. At the right time. Reminds me of the language of Galatians 4. But when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his son, born of woman, born under the law, to redeem those who were under the law so that we might receive adoption as sons. And because you are sons, God has what? Sent the spirit of his son into our hearts crying, Abba, Father. So you are no longer a slave, but a son. And if a son, then an heir through God, crying, Abba, Father, crying out, you are loved. You're loved as a child of God. Here's the reality. Here's here's what we need to grasp. God gave his only son for our salvation. The magnitude of that gift is amazing. It is unparalleled and unprecedented. You see, love can be measured in part by the costliness of the gift 
and also by the nature of the recipient, by their worthiness or unworthiness. So if the gift costs the giver a great deal and the recipient deserves it very little, then how great the love? Start again, measured by these standards, God's love in Christ is absolutely unique. For in sending his son to die for sinners, he was giving everything, his very self, to those who deserved nothing from him except judgment. So the cost was infinite in many ways to those who deserved nothing but judgment. Does that not tell you of the magnitude of his love? So let's draw this out even a bit more, because Paul does. Consider the description of those for whom Christ died here. And there are four in this text. First, weak or helpless or powerless. Those for whom Christ died were and are unable to rescue themselves. Romans 3, 10 and 11. None is righteous, no, not one. No one understands, no one seeks for God. Ephesians 2, 1. And you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked. 1 Corinthians 2.14, the natural person does not accept the things of the Spirit of God, for they are folly to him, and he is not able to understand them because they are spiritually discerned. We were helpless. Second, ungodly. Romans 1.18, for the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. We wanted nothing to do with God. Third, sinners. Romans 3.23, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. We have transgressed God's laws. We have not pursued his glory, but instead we have pursued our own. We have thumbed our noses at him constantly. And finally, enemies. We were hostile to God. We were at war with him. We rebelled against his authority. We fought it at every turn in our lives. And we still too often have the tendency to do that, even as believers. I love what Dane Ortland wrote. When we, despite our smiles and civility, were running from God as fast as we could, Building our own kingdoms and loving our own glory, lapping up the fraudulent pleasures of the world, repulsed by the beauty of God, and shutting up our ears at his calls to come home. It was then, in the hollowed out horror of that revolting existence, that the Prince of Heaven bade his adoring angels farewell. It was then that he put himself into the murderous hands of these very rebels in a divine strategy planned from eternity past to rinse muddy sinners clean and hug them into his own heart despite their squirmy attempt to get free and scrub themselves clean on their own. That's who Christ died for. You and me, sinners. Not to make us lovable, Not to make us so that God would love us, but because he loved us already. It's because he loved us that Christ died for us. That should blow us away every time we hear it. But Paul doesn't stop with those four descriptions. He's still not done here. Are you getting some of the objective truth of God's love here? Because he hasn't stopped. He, he, he compares it to the love we know as humans. It's, it's rare. It is rare that one would die for a righteous or godly person. And, and that, obviously, he's using that in comparison to each other, not to God. He's already made that clear. There is none righteous. Verse 8 shows the contrast. 
you know, maybe this will happen. But, but, always look for those conjunctions. But God shows his love toward us and that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. The point Paul is making is how uncommon it is that something like like that is found among among mankind, and and that being that someone would die for someone respectable and great and and good and that that they love dearly. And, and, And certainly, men don't die for the horrible and nasty, but that's what God did. He demonstrates his own love toward us, that while we were yet sinners, Christ died. God showed his love, commended it demonstrably to us so that we would stop questioning that love that is infinite, eternal, and unchangeable. Ortland again wrote, in Christ's death, now listen closely here, in Christ's death, God is confronting our dark thoughts of him and our chronic insistence that divine love must have an endpoint, a limit, a point at which it finally runs dry. Christ died to confound our intuitive assumptions that divine love has an expiration point. That's our chronic insistence that doesn't happen. And this is where I want to focus now. We have such a need to be assured of God's love. We have such a need of that. John Owen, great Puritan in his work of communion with God, he contemplated this truth of God's love and why it matters. And it's it's hard to, to paraphrase Owen. So here's some quotes from him, and I'll try and work through it. So he says, first then, this is a duty wherein it is most evident that Christians are but little exercised. So we don't do well in this, is what he's saying. Namely, in holding immediate communion with the Father in love. He writes, unacquaintedness with our mercies, our privileges, is our sin as well as our trouble. So not knowing what we have been given in God, in Christ, is not only our sin, but it's trouble to our hearts. We hearken not to the voice of the Spirit which is given unto us, that we may know the things that are freely bestowed on us of God. This makes us go heavily when we might rejoice, and to be weak where we might be strong in the Lord. How few of the saints are experimentally acquainted with this privilege of holding themselves, of holding immediate communion with the Father in love. With what anxious, doubtful thoughts do they look upon him? What fears, what questionings are there of his goodwill and kindness? Folks, I realize that what he writes here is all too true of most of us. we question the rock-solid truth of God's love. Maybe because we're comparing it to the fallible love of others or of our own hearts towards others. So I want to close by considering God's love 
our call to consider it and rest in it, and, and the benefits we have of knowing and rehearsing and living in that love. 1 John 4.8, God is love. Not love is God, but God is love. We have to look to the Father as one full of steadfast love. Our call to worship this morning ended with, let us consider, this, let him who is wise consider the steadfast love of the Lord. Do you look at him as one who has thoughts of kindness toward you? Do you look at him that way? Owen writes, it is a misapprehension of God that makes any run from him. They fix their thoughts only on his terrible majesty, severity, and greatness, not saying we we shouldn't remember those things. He's not saying that. And so their spirits are not endeared. Would a soul continually eye his everlasting tenderness and compassion, his thoughts of kindness that have been from of old, his present gracious acceptance, it could not bear an hour's absence from him. Whereas now, perhaps it cannot watch with him one hour. Those who know the Lord as he is put their trust in him. Psalm 910. We know the Lord's love. We, we know it here as eternal, free, and unchangeable. He has set it upon his children when they were enemies. How much more will he continually to graciously give us all things? So let us in faith believe and rest in his love. We won't know the sweetness of his love until we actually receive it. So we have to consistently, with faith, think on or act on God's love toward us. And when we have an accurate picture of his love, when it is set before us, our minds must know it and believe it. Our wills must embrace it and our affections be warmed and filled by this truth. So let us learn to set our hearts on on this and let that truth constrain us in our lives. For the love of Christ controls us. Jude 20 and 21. But you, beloved, building yourselves up in your most holy faith and praying in the Holy Spirit, Keep yourselves in the love of God, waiting for the mercy of our Lord Jesus Christ that leads to eternal life. He he tells them, building yourselves up, keep yourselves in the love of God. You want to build yourselves up in your most holy faith? Then keep yourself in the love of God. Keep your heart and your mind and your affection set on God's love for you in Christ. But I realize this, and Owen points this out that we are all too apt to have hard thoughts of God. To think he's angry with us. That we are too messed up to draw near to him. I have messed up too many times. There's no way he wants me anywhere in his presence. That that we just aren't worthy. We, We doubt that he could still love us after what I just did. I just did it again and again and again. There's no way that God could still love me. 
Listen to what Owen wrote in regard to that. Now, there is not anything more grievous to the Lord, nor more subservient to the design of Satan upon the soul, than such thoughts as these. Satan claps his hands, if if I may say so, when he can take up the soul with such thoughts of God. This has been his design and way from the beginning. The first blood that murderer shed was by this means. He leads our first parents into hard thoughts of God. Has God said so? Has he threatened you with death? He knows well enough it will be better with you. With this engine did he batter and overthrow all mankind in one and and being mindful of his ancient conquest. He readily uses the same weapons wherewith then he was so successfully contended. He's basically saying, God, Satan will continually test you to say, did God really say so? Does God really have your best? Does God really love you? Does God really care? Does God want you anywhere near him, you loser? You believe those and you are on the wrong team. You're working for the wrong side. Believe the truth. There is little more offensive to the Lord than doubting his love and having such hard thoughts of him. They alienate our heart from him and and from walking in communion with him, from experiencing his his love poured into our hearts by the Holy Spirit. We have to preach truth to ourselves. And if we can't, get somebody else to do it for you. If you can't muster it up, call a friend in Christ and say, I need somebody to tell me about the love of Jesus. That's what we need. So then, what are the benefits of knowing this love? Some I hope you've seen already in this. But let me just point out just a few here. One is freedom. There's freedom in knowing God's love and being assured of it. Knowing ourselves to be loved means we don't have to worry. We don't have to angle for ourselves and self-justify. We don't have to create our own identity. We can devote our time and energy to love others who desperately need what we have. And doing so will actually further transform us as we serve as a conduit for God's love towards someone else. There's also great comfort and security in knowing the love of God. God did not set his love on believers when they were great. He set his love because he loved them. I mentioned this last week in our, our sermon discussion. I used to ask my kids, Bed, why does dad love you? They only had one right answer. And it's because you love me. They could could not say, well, because I did really well today. No! I love you because I love you, and God loves us because he set his love upon us. It is not your performance that makes him love you. That may be one of the hardest things to get out of our thick skulls. He loves us because he loves us. He loved us when we were enemies. How much more now shall we be saved by him from the wrath to come and saved by his life? We may be at a low point, but folks, his love will never change. He will never leave his children whom he loves. 
And when the psalmist saw the the boasting of the evil person, you could look at Psalm 52, he turned to the steadfast love of God. When he saw things not going well, where did they turn? To the steadfast love of God. But this is also protection from sin and Satan to keep the love of God close to our hearts. 2 Thessalonians 3, 3 through 5. But the Lord is faithful. He will establish you and guard you against the evil one. And we have confidence in the Lord about you, that you are doing and will do the things that we command. May, and this is his prayer, his benediction in many ways. May the Lord direct your hearts to the love of God and to the steadfastness of Christ. May the Lord direct your hearts to the love of God. Now, I realize it can be difficult to keep God's love in our hearts. I've gone through many reasons why. And you can probably come up with a list yourself. There is much in this world that seeks to dim the glow and glory of his love. So we have to keep reminding ourselves and each other. I would encourage you, meditate and even memorize, if you can, Romans 8, 31 to 39. There's eight verses. Memorize that. Meditate on it. Write it on your mirror in the morning so you read it every day. What shall separate us from the love of Christ? The simple answer is nothing. So I'll leave us with this quite simply. Be assured by faith and remember and trust in and rest in the love of God for his children. Let's pray. Father, I think of Paul's prayer in Ephesians. As he's laid out the gospel, and then he prays, For this reason I bow my knees before the Father, from whom every family in heaven and on earth is named, that according to the riches of his glory, he may grant you to be strengthened with power through his Spirit in your inner being, so that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith, that you, being rooted and grounded in love, may have strength to comprehend with all the saints what is the breadth and length and height and depth, and to know the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge, that you may be filled with all the fullness of God. And Lord, I pray that today. I pray that for this congregation. I pray that for every person in here, for anyone who listens, that we, those who have believed and trusted in Christ by faith, that we would be assured of the love of God. And I know that seems like a big ask. So I pray with Paul now to him who is able to do far more abundantly than all that we ask or think. According to the power at work within us, to him be glory in the church and in Christ Jesus throughout all generations, forever and ever. Amen.